You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, we've come to the Ninth Commandment, and as Providence would have it, I'm tasked with it. It's probably, in my estimation, the most difficult one to consider. And you have to know that good theologians... What happened? Did I turn that off? Oh. Uh, oh, okay. Good theologians, who men I respect, men who are far more able than me, disagree with me on what I'm going to teach you. <laughs> so, there are different ways to understand this commandment, and uh, this is the best I can do. So, we'll work our way through it, see how you think, see if Scripture does back up what we're saying. So the Ninth Commandment, which is the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The three previous commands, you'll remember, prohibit sinful actions against our neighbor. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm sorry. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Six, seven, and eight. Now the ninth prohibits sinful words against our neighbors. So we're moving from outward to inward. We have the actions, we have the words, and then in the tenth, of course, we'll have the desires. Thou shalt not covet. <clears throat> and coveting really covers all of it, as we'll see, or as Pastor Pylon will point out. But here it deals with the sanctity of truth and honesty in human society. Very important. When Jesus stood before Pilate, you remember the governor asked him, what is truth? And the irony of the situation was that truth stood before him. He was looking straight at it and he couldn't recognize it because Pilate was a pragmatist. His commitment, if there was any to truth, was weak, and it was always overruled by expediency, which simply means what works. So rather than stick with the truth and have a conviction about reality, he just did what was ever necessary to get his desired end. It was expediency. And that's what we call a pragmatist. And this is probably the prevailing worldview of most modern Americans. Pragmatism. But the Father is truth, the Son is truth, the Holy Spirit is truth in the highest and most complete sense. Truth is exceptionally important to the Trinity. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the Father is truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, his son, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, Expositors debate as to whether that refers to the Son or not. I'm convinced that it does refer to the Son. But even if it doesn't, he's talking about the truth. And the truth is in Christ and in the Father. And then, of course, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, truth. Exceptionally important, they're identified with it, they are it. The mystery of the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is the absolute, ultimate, and eternal truth. So if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be Trinitarian. That is the ultimate truth. That is reality. Any questions on what we've talked about so far? Okay. Because they are the truth, as we'll see repeatedly, and you might think I'm being rather redundant in these slides, but as he is the truth, that's why it's so important. He is truth. And any falsehood is a contradiction to the nature of God. Can I move on, Sue? Yeah. <laughs> well, I noticed you had a kind of a quizzical look. I wasn't sure if... Okay. What underlies the sanctity of truth and it is sacred, is the being of God, the truth. He is the God of truth, and all truth derives its sanctity from him. All untruth, all falsehood, lies and deception contradicts what God is. I think that's such an important point, because as we deal with whether or not we should lie, and we'll talk about that, we have to recognize that no matter what the circumstances are, when we lie... It is a contradiction to the nature of God. And that undergirds my understanding of the ninth commandment. In contradistinction from men I respect who disagree with me. God cannot lie because to do so would be to contradict himself. Therefore, his promises are true. And that undergirds our assurance. If he says something, it's true. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. There's the bedrock of your assurance because God cannot lie. And if you don't have assurance because you don't think that's true, you're denying the veracity of God. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. The devil attacked God's veracity in the very beginning in the temptation in the garden. He tempted Eve, among other things, by saying, you will not surely die. Now, you remember what God had said. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And in Hebrew, of course, when they want to emphasize something, they repeat it. So literally, it was the day that you eat of it, you will die dying. It's repeated. You'll surely die. And so he attacked the veracity of God, the truth of God. You will not surely die. He accuses God implicitly of falsehood and deception, implying that he is jealous of his knowledge, and the day that you eat of it, you'll become like God's. He knows that. He doesn't want to share that with you. He's being stingy. He's lying to you. And so what is impugned there is God's truthfulness. And what is at stake is the integrity and the faithfulness of God. And so when somebody disbelieves, it makes God a liar, Rob. No, I'm sorry. I, I kind of I would, didn't express it very clearly. I'm glad you... What we're saying is that if you lack assurance because you don't believe what John 3.36 says, you're impugning the truthfulness of God. If God says, if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life now. And eternal life is not temporary life. You can't lose it. If you don't believe that, you're impugning the veracity of God. That's a sin. 
So it depends on why you don't have assurance. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, he died for me. Yes, I know God says that I have eternal life, but I don't believe it. That's making God a liar. That's different. Yeah. Even our forefathers in the confession will say something like, you know, true believers by reason of weakness or sickness or sins or even desertions, their assurance will ebb and flow. That's not, that's typical. Yeah. I'm thankful that you asked that. But he is true. And so our assurance, if we have it, is based first and foremost upon the promises of Scripture. If we question his veracity and deny his absolute truth, man's own integrity is compromised because any integrity we have is based on and rooted in the integrity of our maker. There is no basis for truth. There is no foundation for integrity if mankind rejects or denies God's veracity. That's our society. What's truth? That's Pilate. (laughs) What is truth? It's just whatever works and situational ethics. You got 10 people in a rowboat and you're starving, what do you do? You kill the weakest and you eat them because it works. The necessity of truth in human beings rests upon the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. We are to be truthful because God is truthful. He is a God of truth and we're made in his image. Is it not significant that the arch enemy of God and the accuser of the brethren is described in Scripture as the father of lies? The lies come from Satan. He is the lie, just like God is the truth. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, whatever he says. Any comments or questions? Okay. I'm going to belabor this point, and again, it might seem kind of redundant, and I apologize, but it's very important because it's the nature of God. He is truth. As untruth is the mark of evil, so truth is the mark of godliness. We know the only true God through his word. If we know him, we know the truth. And when we are of the truth, and when we know the truth, we hear Christ's voice because that is true. If you're not of the truth, you will not listen to the voice of Christ. And this manifests itself in a believer's truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. Now, none of us abide in this perfectly. None of us tell the truth all the time, not even to ourselves. We're dishonest with ourselves. Perhaps that's the hardest thing, to be truthful with yourself. Self-deception is so easy. You look in the mirror and you see one thing, and everybody else looks at you and sees another thing. And it's easy to be deceived. But if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is the practical lie, hypocrisy. Since faith is based upon and ends with the truth of Jesus, the Christian is obedient to the truth, all of the truth. You were running well, Paul says to the Galatians. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Not just receiving it. The Greek idea of truth is that we affirm it. We assent to it. It's an abstraction. The Hebrew idea of truth is that you live it. Very different. Truth is embodied in your life. You practice the truth. You obey the truth. So that's the biblical understanding. And if you affirm truth, 
Sincerely, it should manifest itself in a life that's conformed to that truth. Sin entered the world through the tempter's falsehood and the acquiescence of Adam and Eve. That's how we're in the state we're in right now. It's the lie. All truth, then, is derived from God himself, and only in relation to him is anything in the world true. Two plus two equals four because God made it that way. It's true because God is true. The liar is one who affirms to be true. Now, this is what a liar is. Affirm to be true what he knows or believes to be false, or vice versa. He affirms to be false what he knows or believes to be true. Now, there are some cases where you might know or believe something to be a certain way, and it's not. But that's not the lie, because you're misinformed on the facts. That's different. The liar is the one who affirms to be true what he knows or believes to be false. So again, getting back to Rob's question, Jesus or God said it. He who has the Son has eternal life. I know it's to be true, but I'm going to say, no, it's not true. <laughs> I'm questioning the veracity of God. I may not see my life and it's not really in conformity with loving Jesus, but I know that's true. And if that's true, he who does believe in Jesus has eternal life. So that's the basis of our assurance. That's the whole undergirding of the perseverance of the saints. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you have eternal life. It's not life that can be, eternal life can't be lost. It's eternal. If you think it can be lost, if you're an Arminian, well, then you're saying, no, that's not true. <clears throat> it's temporary life. He who has a son has temporary life. I can love Jesus today and hate him tomorrow. That's the Arminian theology. Any Arminian could be a sincere Christian, but he shouldn't be in the pulpit until he understands the truth of John 3.36. Any quite Oh, let's keep going. <laughs> to be involved in passing on a misrepresentation, however noble the motive. Now, this is where we're going to get into some trouble. To be involved in passing on a misrepresentation, a lie, however noble the motive, is involvement in untruth. It is intrinsically wrong and wicked, I will argue, because it is false and not a true representation of the truth. Now, we're going to get into some situations, hiding the Jews and so forth. However noble the motive, this is where I disagree with my better fathers in the faith. However noble the motive, we're involved in untruth. The duty is to frame in accordance with the truth whatever we believe, express, or practice at all times. And every teaching elder in the PCA subscribes to this, even though they may not realize it. Because in the larger catechism, it says we're to speak the truth in all things whatsoever. And that eliminates some of these noble causes. Any questions on this so far? Yes, Julia. Um, so say you have a family situation in which substance abuse is happening. And you have a parent drinking too much, for example. And mom says, oh, dad's okay. He's just sick. She knows he's drunk. She's telling the kids. What do you think about that and like this? It's a lie. It's untruth. There's got to be a way 
to protect our little ones from the harsh reality of alcoholism rather than telling a lie. And as we'll see, I think scripture allows at times for concealing the truth or giving a partial truth. Um, and again, I have to take an exception. I'll write to my presbytery. <clears throat> and after studying this, I realize the confession says you're not to conceal the truth, but I think the Bible says otherwise. So anyway, but um, yeah, sorry, Ray. I'm going to have to send that in. Hopefully I'll still be here next week. <laughs> but I think there's ways to do it other than just telling a lie. Yeah, because that, that doesn't help our children. Modeling the lie. Was there a good Don? Yeah, how about quibbling? Uh, where you're beating around the truth. I mean, when you, and I think about the oath that somebody takes when they take a witness stand. Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do we deal with that? You're not, to, you're not to be speaking things in equivocal statements. In other words, you can't say things that can be taken three or four different ways. You mean it this way, but you're giving the impression that it's this way. That is not concealing the truth, that's speaking equivocally. We're to speak the truth unequivocally, right? We're to say what we mean and mean what we say. Um, John? And wouldn't then this also be just what you were saying, that there are times when we should speak, when we know the truth and we should speak it and to withhold it would also be, it, it don't, don't conceal the truth. Absolutely. Holding the truth at certain times would be Undue silence in a just cause is just almost as bad as telling a lie, as we'll see. You're right. Speaking the truth or addressing iniquity when we're called to complain or reprove, that's sinful as well. Yes, Melissa, and then we'll go. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, good, good question, Sue. Well, you sort of spoke to this, but where does love and compassion fit into this whole thing? I mean, you were, I mean, you brought up the Jews. Yeah. It it just seems like that you're saving lives. Would you commit adultery to save a life? Yes or no? <laughs> Would you break the seventh commandment to keep the sixth? No, you wouldn't, would you? Of course not. I don't think. I mean, <laughs> we would all recoil at that, as we should. But when it comes to the ninth, to break the sixth, or break the ninth for the sixth, oh, no big deal. We'll get there. What's your... It's the same as Melissa's. Okay. Yeah, we're getting there. Brian? So for the initial case you were talking about, where someone's been genuinely never speaking the truth, but it is not the truth, they haven't done the study or they have a wrong understanding of what they're reading. Would a parallel to that be like the legal concept of those mens rea where we differentiate how egregious something is based on the intent behind it? It's still wrong, it still violates the law, but one is more uh, offensive than the other. Yeah, I think, and you're getting to the whole idea of are, are some sins more heinous in the sight of God than others? And yes, I would agree. Um, there are degrees. Nevertheless, untruth, we're saying, is a violation of the ninth commandment. So yeah, you're right. There are more heinous violations given some of the circumstances. Laura? It's also a tremendous 
the slippery slope when you justify that this untruth is small the ends justify the and that's one of the difficulties that I find Laura I'm glad you said that because again well, we're going to get there but one of my heroes will argue well in war the enemy's not your neighbor right you speak truth to your neighbor but not your enemy. Well, okay, then you gotta sit down and decide who's my enemy, who's my neighbor, and it seems to me that Jesus is telling us, hey, the Samaritans, the Jews and Samaritans were not considered friends. So it's a very difficult thing when you get into those gray area, who's your enemy, who's your neighbor, I don't, you know. So the duties required are maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man, and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. Now, that's going to be a subset here, the reputation, which we'll get into, but maintaining and promoting the truth. A faithful witness does not lie. A faithful witness. We are witnesses to the glory of God and the honor of Christ and the truth of the Spirit and the good of our neighbor. Where faithful witnesses are to be called that, we don't lie. But a false witness breathes out lies. God delights in truth because truth is one of his attributes. Jesus identified himself as the truth, the absolute, ultimate, eternal, incarnate truth. Because he is the truth, all of his reasonable creatures must regard truth as sacred. Oh, I'm sorry, Rob? Um, going back to your last slide, you have an amazing way of making a tank very complex. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift. <laughs> I, I feel like overwhelmed by it all, like in, in a good way, just processing it. Um, but you said something on the last slide about Arminianism. Yeah. Um, Haley and I were like, that's a strong statement. We probably agree with you. Could you just maybe rephrase it? The Arminian does not believe in the perseverance of the saints. The Arminian thinks that he who perseveres to the end will be saved, but who knows if you're going to persevere to the end? It's up to you. So today you might love Jesus, but tomorrow, who knows? And what the Arminian is saying is that what God says in John 3.36 is false. He who, he who believes in the Son has, not will have, has eternal life. Well, if you have life that's eternal, that means there's no end. So the true believer now has eternal life, and he can't lose it. But the Arminian contradicts that and says, well, yeah, I can lose it. It's up to me. So I guess what I'm saying is the Arminian can be totally inconsistent with the truth of God's word and be sincere in his love for Christ, but he doesn't understand the truth fully, consistently. So he can be in the church, but he should not be in the pulpit. He should not be at the lectern. He doesn't understand. Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things? As if you shouldn't be the teacher of Israel, right? John? When uh, David and his friends were fleeing from Saul, <coughs> they went into the house of God and stole the bread and ate it. They should not lawfully eat. Um, you wouldn't break the seventh commandment to the sixth, but that's stealing. When God gives us express permission to break a commandment, we can do so. So in the Sixth Commandment, for example, uh, public justice, lawful war, necessary defense, you can break the Sixth Commandment. Nowhere do we see him giving that kind of exception to the Ninth. 
So if you see, if you steal a loaf of bread, just stay the starving child. He didn't steal it. The priest gave it to him. It was unlawful because it was sacred for the priesthood, but it was given to them to keep the sixth commandment, right? <clears throat> it was given to him by the priest. And that's one of the reasons why all the uh, priests were slaughtered by King Saul. As if he was helping his enemy, right? That's one of the problems. Doeg, the whistleblower. So God is a source of truth. Devil is the source of untruth. He is the father of lies, which means that any kind of lie is under his headship. He is the deceiver of the whole world. His kingdom is one of falsehood. And so what this requires of us is a correspondence between our words and reality in whatever we assert, assert or deny. We're to guard against deceit and hypocrisy and speak only that which we know and believe to be true. Now, this gets back to Brian's point, but you know and believe. Now, you may not have all the facts, and in that situation, it's difficult. You're culpable for the light that you're given, okay? We have to preserve and promote the truth, and when able, appear and stand for the truth in all things. This is John's point. You appear and stand for the truth. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So, if you're in a just cause, and truth needs to be expressed, and you withhold that truth, you're falling into sin. You're failing in your duty. Jim? In the secular world, we have the right to remain silent if we're arrested or questioned by police. In taking that right and remaining silent when we know the truth, is that a violation? I don't think so, because the magistrate has given you that caveat. The legal authority that God has given to them, delegated to them, has given you the right not to incriminate yourself or your spouse to incriminate you. So in a court of law, the judge has allowed that. That's okay. So, Mary Alice, you don't have to testify against him. You're all set. <laughs> God's people are to bless and swear by the God of truth. He cannot lie. He never lies. He will not lie. We're made in his image, and therefore that's why we are to be truthful. We do so in words, oaths, promises, agreements, and contracts. When you keep a contract, it's a reflection upon the God of truth. Rob? Um, I'm thinking of Rahab. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> I anticipated you. <laughs> I'm trying to get through this so we can get to these more interesting things, right? These are things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Speak the truth with his neighbor. God delights in truth in the inward being. He abhors falsehood. He takes pleasure in those with truth in the depths of their soul. That's why when the Spirit comes into us, thank God, he's the Spirit of truth, and we begin to understand and believe and speak the truth. You begin to understand who you are. A sinful wretch, redeemed by grace, being conformed to the image of Christ and subdued to his will. We're also to promote and maintain the good name of our neighbors as well as our own. This has to do with the person's reputation, public esteem, and how well and wisely we handle that. This is a whole area, very important. We should commend what is praiseworthy. I had the privilege and delight of praising my wife the other week. I think that's important. We do it for one another in the church. We bear with things that are weak. We cover the flaws in love. 
Any superior that's in our lives, we can see their flaws. You can see mine, right? But if they're flaws, if they're weaknesses, we bear with it. If they're crimes, we prosecute it. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We stand up for others. We vindicate their good name when necessary. Our friends, our brethren, our neighbors, our acquaintances. We not only avoid slandering them, but we come to their defense when wrongly and unnecessarily accused. You can wrong another, and this gets back to John's point. You can wrong another by silence as well as slander if you know that your neighbor is in need of help. So don't just think because you didn't say anything, you're scot-free. Sin's forbidden. Whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. It forbids lying, slander, gossip, even at the prayer meeting. Refusing to defend. And by that I simply mean sometimes people bring up prayer requests simply because they want to spread some juicy bit, you know. It doesn't happen in ours, I don't think. At least I haven't heard it. Well, maybe it did, but I didn't know it was gossip, so. The truth is sacred and a person's reputation is so important. The good name of our neighbor. We may not in any way prejudice the truth, give false evidence, or wittingly plead for an evil cause. It forbids calling evil good and good evil, or rewarding the wicked as if they're righteous, or the righteous as if they're wicked. In a just cause, it's wrong to be silent, or when sin abounds, to withhold reproof or complaint. If you're in a position, providentially, to reprove somebody who's fallen into sin and you don't, you're violating the ninth commandment. Doesn't have to be mean spirited, but reproof. We may not speak the truth unseasonably. This gets back to Julia's point. There may be some things that are unseasonable for others, so you can withhold some information. Maliciously, wrongly, in doubtful expressions, this gets to your point, Don. Doubtful, you're equivocating, you know. It forbids lying, slandering, gossiping, scoffing, reviling, and misconstructing intentions. When somebody walks on the hallway and you say, hi, hi, Doug, and he just turns around and walks the other way, and you conclude from that that he hates you. When, in fact, his dog just died, and he's very sad about the whole thing, and he didn't even see you say anything. So you're misconstructing intentions, words, or actions. We can't flatter, boast, think, or speak too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others. You can't break lawful promises or practice those things which tarnish your own good name. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't even go near it. Avoid the appearance of evil. Don? Yeah. What do you do when your wife comes and asks you, how do I look? That's probably the most difficult thing about the Ninth Commandment, right? (laughs) No, she's beautiful in your eyes. Um, You can conceal the truth, I suppose, if you want to. (laughs) Honey, I think you're beautiful, you know. No, he says, I think you can do better. You're a brave man. Wow. We not only conform to the truth, we avoid lying. 
It's based upon God's truth. Must we, on all occasions, speak the truth? Here we go. May we conceal it or lie. Don't conclude from God's blessing his approval of sinful actions. This is what I've debated with my friends many times. Oh, Rahab, you know, and we'll get through all these. Jacob and Rebekah lied to Isaac when he pretended to be his brother Esau, and God blessed him. I must bless lying. God fulfills his purpose in spite of the sinful actions that his people commit or facilitate. He didn't bless him because he lied. He blessed him because he believed. He spares us from what we deserve. That's mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. Jacob lied to his father Isaac, and this only elevates our esteem of God's sovereign grace. You mean he blessed a liar? That's grace. It's amazing to me. Neither he nor Rebekah tried to promote or preserve their good name or that belonging to Isaac. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. So, God blessed them in spite of their sin. Don't conclude that he approves of everything that went on there. Rahab hid the spies on the roof and then lied to the men sent to her by the king of Jericho. Oh, well, then he must approve lying, right? Rahab was a woman of faith, Hebrews 11.31. She's commended for her faith, not for her lie. We cannot make the mistake of justifying the lie simply because it was associated with her good deed. Any questions on those two? Yes, Dan. Um, I guess the obvious is that there, there would be a situation where someone is a sworn enemy. Now, the Samaritans cohabitated with the Jews in an uneasy relationship. So it would be hard to make the case that the Samaritans were sworn enemies. What's a sworn enemy? Can you so define that? Vows to destroy it. So like yeah, a lawful war, yeah, you're saying? Yeah, a lawful war. Like I think of the case in World War II, I think it may have even happened in Ukraine, where uh, one side or the other had blow-up tanks or cardboard tanks that they used to deceive the enemy. We'll get there. Hold that thought. Samuel didn't speak the whole truth when he went to anoint David. As a matter of fact, God told him to do this. He said he would sacrifice to God and concealed the rest. He did, in fact, sacrifice to God. So he did not speak untruth. But God told him, well, say that you're going to go, because he said, look, if Saul knows that I'm going to do this, he's going to kill me. So just tell him, the Lord says, that you're going to sacrifice to the Lord. Don't tell him that you're going to go anoint David to be the future king. So he did sacrifice to the Lord. He didn't speak untruth. And therefore, we can make concealed truth since partial truth is not untruth. This is why I disagree with our catechism, because it does show an instance or two or three where... God's people concealed, and this, one's, this one is one that God told him to do it. The Hebrew midwives didn't necessarily lie to Pharaoh, but gave him partial truth. The Hebrew woman may have given birth to their children without the aid of the midwives. We don't know. Oh, Rob? So what was the mechanic on the, the, I don't know the, the dialogue. So, so Saul asked Samuel, and then what? Samuel was told to go anoint David yeah. to be king. If Saul had known he was going there, to, he would have killed him. 
So Samuel says to the Lord, Lord, if, if he knows I'm going to go join David, he's going to kill me. The Lord tells Samuel, well, just say you're going to that town to sacrifice to the Lord. Because prophets would go into towns, you know, where they would give prophecies and they would sacrifice and so forth. Right, and I can say I'm not giving it to you. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not lying. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, just, I don't know if we're saying that Saul said, Samuel, well, where'd you go? Oh, he asked, now I have to tell you. <laughs> right. Because I did. Well, you have to know, like Doeg, there's spies in every city. And word gets back, why is Samuel coming to this city? Why is he going to Jesse's house? And the point is, he's going there to sacrifice, and maybe he's going into Jesse's house because it's a big, wealthy family. He's going to sacrifice there. So if word, word is going to get back to the king, it's like, you know, the reform, reform world is a small world. Well, Israel's a small world. The king had spies everywhere. No, but he, apparently he was afraid that if his actions got back to Saul, Saul would question, why were you there? You know, and so this was, this was a way for him to be relieved of any threat. Yes, Doug? We also don't know if Saul ever asked him. Right. right. In some sense, this could also be God's reassurance to Samuel. Of Samuel, don't worry, like, I've got a job for you. Go do the job that I give you. Yeah, but see, God told him to anoint David first. That was his job. Right. And the whole point was Samuel's afraid of being found out. Right. And God's given him a, if you're asked of something, this is what you can right. say. Right. We don't know if he ever even had to say We don't know. You're right. The midwives feared God. They had to disobey Pharaoh's command because they could not kill. So they did not tell the whole truth. But even if we think they did speak the untruth, I don't think they did, but even if we think they did, the Lord did not commend them for lies, but for their faith. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt and commanded them, but let the male children live. So again, they're not commended for their lie. They're commended for their faith. What about deceptive strategies in war? This is Dan's question. May we try to deceive the enemy by pretending... In the conquest of Ai, for example, part of the army acted as if they were retreating. This is the deceptive area of war. And the ambush worked. The men of Ai came out, the ambush came up and attacked them from behind, and they slaughtered them. So this, this uh, strategy worked. So the question is, well, then there you go. There's, there's a lie, correct? Hold on. Israel did... What they intended to do, it, they were not obliged to inform the enemy what, why they did it, right? They weren't lying. They just had two guys or two groups at two different spots. The men of I were deceived, not because Israel lied, but because they misinterpreted their actions. Now, we can quibble on this. I understand. But this is how I understand it. Jim? Scott, would you say in this vein as well, like having someone who's camouflaged on the battlefield, is the same? 
Same thing. Is it, is, it, is it deceitful? Is it lying to put on a certain kind of clothing that meshes with the foliage? Well, we can quibble. I'm saying no because you're drawing a conclusion from that that maybe I'm not intending. Now, we get into motives here. I understand that. So this is where it's really hard. And this is why I said the ninth commandment is probably the most difficult commandment to exposit. John? Uh, it sounds like this, this thing where you are doing something, intending, somebody's intending to deceive, where you are saying something intending to deceive, should, because that's what we're saying, actions are words intending to deceive. This would be um, something only done when there is an act of war or when there is... Some, a person would be doing harm or you are lawful war or something like that. My hero would say you're right. And my hero would say Dan is right. That in war, in your enemy, it's not only your privilege to lie, it's your duty to lie. You're required to lie to your enemy. I, I have a hard time with that. Or act right. They're acting acceptable. Right, Bruce? I just find this... In all the other discussions we've had, it's pretty much black and white. I remember, like, what is defined as adultery. It's black and white. It's avoid all appearances of evil. This brings up the, the whole black and white. You know, there's a thousand shades of gray, and it's it's uh, it allows us to create some level of judgment and situational ethics in the way we conduct ourselves. I don't think I drew the right conclusion, but it. It's certainly what it sounds like. Well, it's close. You, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't accuse, again, my hero, I wouldn't accuse him of situational ethics, but you're right. It, it leads us into a situation where it's very difficult to make these distinctions, right? Um, and with the sixth commandment, God gives us many preceptive and descriptive texts which give us the, the exceptions. Lawful more, necessary defense, public execution. Um, with the ninth commandment, I don't see that in Scripture. I'd love to be able to see it because there are times when I want to lie. I'll be honest with you. Not just my wife, you know, if you look good, because she always looks good, um, but with the enemy, like Dan was saying. Jonathan? Uh, the one example I think of is in Judges with Gideon and his 300 men, and the intent was very clear when they blow the trumpets and break the, you know, break the oil lamps and light them, is they want the enemy to think there's way more than 300. Yeah, that's a, that's, it's an interesting situation, though, but again, my point would be they didn't lie, and the enemy drew their own conclusions from what they heard and what they saw. Right? So again, we can quibble on that. Whose motive are we going to base it on? Right? But I would think that in that situation, it's not wrong to break things and to blow trumpets, and they might draw a different conclusion on a different day. Again, you can see where this is difficult. It is difficult. And good men and women differ. But I have a hard time. I wish, if we're bound by Scripture, I have a hard time saying that it's okay for you to lie if God doesn't give me permission to do so somewhere. This last slide. Some, some theologians try to justify the lie of utility, exigency, or necessity, which is what we're talking about. Nowhere does Scripture legitimize speaking untruth in any situation. The Bible warrants concealment, partial truth, 
Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Keeps a thing covered. You don't tell the four-year-old that mom's drunk. Mom's not feeling good. Well, she's not. She's in the toilet. She's, you know, having a hard time. Um, But you cover a thing. Wisdom. Now, there may come a time when the child asks, Dad, did mom have too much to drink? Yeah, she did. And you can see what happens. Sometimes wicked people forfeit their right to know the truth. I've heard this argument. We're not obliged to tell them. But forfeiting one's right to the truth is very different from another person speaking untruth. That's a very difficult distinction to make. Just because the former has forfeited his right does not give you the license to lie. I don't see scripture giving that to you. So I've heard that many times. Well, he's such a wretch and such a wicked person that I don't have to tell him the truth. Well, I don't think that's true. Truth is one of the most important and fundamental claims upon our conformity and our obedience. What is more sacred than truth? You tell me. Is life more sacred than truth? He's the author of life. He's the God of truth. Which one is more sacred? Is love? God is love. God is truth. Which is more sacred? God loved the world, which is why he sent his son. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Why did you come, Jesus? To bear witness to the truth. It's sacred. So if you walk away from this with nothing else, walk away knowing that the truth is sacred. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth, and we pray that you'll help us in all the difficulties and hardships of life and all the circumstances in which we find ourselves to be characterized by truth. Be with us now and prepare us for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.